Job chapter 29 is where we're turning this morning. Job 29 is a text that goes right along with Job 30 and 31 that is the last words of Job. And you think, thank goodness. I mean, there's been a lot of words going on in this, in this book, and not all of them have been sweet and peaceful or even true. And the things that Job has been saying, they kind of give us pause. They give us some, some questions. Wow, what, what is he doing here? What is, how is his sentiment, how is his opinion honoring the Lord? How is it speaking truth to us? What about Eliphaz and Bildad and, and Zophar? What are they saying? And how do we understand that? And then, Lord willing, next week we'll meet this other fellow, Elihu, and, and he has some words as well. In fact, he has the most words of any of the friends. Not that he is a friend. We're not quite sure uh, if he was present well, we'll look at that more carefully. But he is, he is regarded as kind of a separate uh, character than the other three uh, men who've been speaking to, to Job. Chapters 29 through 31 are really a, a, a package. Again, the last words of Job, as he uh, wraps up his comments. It is a self-contained unit, if you don't mind. And he basically professes and avows and declares and affirms and all any other verbs you can think of his innocence that he does not deserve the judgment that perceptibly has come upon them right because that's what the friends say no uh, the reason job that you are suffering is because you've sinned suffering follows sin obviously you're you're suffering greatly so you've sinned greatly and we don't know what the sins are but we can guess because obviously this and that and, the, and you can go back and look at all that and their solution of course is you want to be blessed well you be you be pious you be a religious person not a negative piety like we might consider as that word is used negatively oh there's a really pious or self-righteous person no a pious person who fears God and turns away from evil, who is blameless and righteous, blameless and upright, as we saw in the very first verse of this book. So having that piety. But their assumption is, oh, it's a simple simple equation. If you sin, you'll suffer. If you are uh, pious, you'll be blessed. And so just, just do all that. And Job says, no, I, I, there's nothing that I need to repent of. What I've what I have done wrongly or sinfully in my life, I have confessed that. I've even offered sacrifices. Remember in chapter 1, verse 5, how he offered sacrifices for his children, even if they had possibly, perhaps, maybe, sinned by cursing God in their hearts. Job says, I'm going to offer a sacrifice just in case. And how much more would he have done that for himself? He was a pious person by faith, by sacrifice. And yet, these friends say, no, you're a great, notorious sinner because you're sinning or you're, you're suffering and so greatly. And their solution, of course, is, well, you just need to turn back to the Lord, confess your sins, and, and so forth. And sometimes that's how we approach su- suffering, whatever it might be. Well, you know, what, what did I do to earn or merit or, or justify God to, to curse me or to make me suffer in this way? What sin should I be looking for in my life? Now, if you read in 1 Corinthians 11, a little bit more as we celebrate the Lord's table today, for this reason, some of you are sick and some of you are sleeping. So there is kind of a connection there, yes, between sowing and reaping. And we see that in Galatians 6 as well. But it's not a hard and fast rule such that God is bound to do that. You sin, you're going to suffer. That You've just got to grin and bear it. God has to suffer or make you suffer because you sin. No, they forget, the, the friends forget, there's grace with God. There is forgiveness with God. There is a break in that equation. Just because you did sin doesn't mean that you have to suffer for your sin. There is a different, there's a redeemer. That's what Job reaches out for many different occasions through the course of his, his statements. I know my redeemer lives, my, the one who stands in my place and rescues me from that wrath, which I know I'm, I'm worthy of that. I, I'm not, Job is saying, I'm not uh, innocent, perfectly, you know, 
I've not lived a, a wonderful life, but I know that I have come to Christ and I or come to God in faith. Christ hasn't been announced yet. Mostly, right? There's anyway, I get behind myself and above myself and be, and all the because Genesis three verse fifteen is the first preaching of the gospel. Yes, the seed of woman is going to rise up and crush Satan's heel or crush, crush Satan's head. So there is a, a hint, an inkling of a salvation. And Job is just saying, you know, God is going to provide something. Did that situation in Genesis twenty two already happen? Do you remember Genesis 22 when Abraham was told by God, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and sacrifice him on the, on the mountain which I'll show you? Did that happen? Because you remember, Isaac wasn't sacrificed. God himself provided a lamb, a substitute. So that, that whole thing about substitution goes back even to Genesis 3 after the curse that, okay, Adam and Eve obviously were depraved. Great granddaddy's statement was, Obviously, they were to pray because they clothed themselves with these itchy kind of leaves that they weren't very comfortable. God covered them with lambs or, or animal skin. Something had to die to cover their nakedness, their shame, their reproach. And so substitution is all through here, all through the, uh, the text of Scripture from the very beginning. And, of course, fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ. So Job is saying, look, you guys have a, a perfect, or in your mind, a perfect solution to my situation, but it's not right. I am an innocent person. I have done nothing of the sort that you're accusing me of, and I am calling upon God himself because he alone knows my way. He alone knows what I've done and not done. I'm calling on him to either condemn me, as you think he's justified in doing, or to acquit me and declare me innocent. I've got to have God be my witness and my judge to accomplish this this justice for me. Very similar to what we can read about in ancient Near East uh, histories and, and narratives where somebody who's been accused of something says, okay, prove it, and, and very, very simple words, um, prove it or, or be quiet. Just back off because because I think I'm innocent, but it's you need to it, it, uh, present the evidence for accusation accusation or to acquit me in this thing. And so he's calling upon God to acquit me because of all of his innocence. In chapters 29 and 30, and in the contrast in, thir- in, chapter, in chapters 29 and 31, we see Job's depiction of what a good life looks like. In chapter 30, we see the contrast of that and very, very profound uh, challenge or difference in that that uh, depiction of life. And so we need to think, though, is, is Job being self-righteous in how he's even reminiscing about his life? Is he saying, oh, I, I had it really good, and I was, I was blessed by God and all this, and then we get into chapter 31. I've never done that sin and that sin, and I've never done that sin and that sin and that sin. I've never done it. Is that self-righteous? Not if it's true. It's kind of like Jesus proclaiming himself as God. Is that blasphemous? Not if it's true. And so when Job presents himself as one who uh, always cared for the poor and always sought justice and was kind to enemies and all these things, we think, oh, Job, you're just, you're just blowing smoke. You're trying to make yourself look good. Job is a man of integrity. He would not present himself any which way that he isn't already known in the gate, as we'll read about here. And by God himself, God himself, again, chapters 1 and 2, God refers to Job two times as one who is blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity. Uh, God said commendably about Job. So we get to chapter 29, and it says Job continued. We, by the way, just again referencing, hey, chapter 28, 
If you wonder all about what's chapter 28, go back to last Sunday's uh, sermon. But Job celebrated the, the wisdom of God. Verse 28 of chapter 28 says, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and turn from evil is understanding. And Job continued to lift up his discourse, and he said these things. So he is here in uh, chapter 30, let me go back, or chapter 29, he is here uh, speaking about his prosperous past, and he, he's not speaking of it in a, in a boasting way or kind of a descriptive way, he is yearning for it, and it's not even the prosperity that he enjoyed, the, the material wealth and so forth, he relished and rejoiced in the fellowship he had with God, and again, throughout his whole speeches, his friends are saying, oh, you lost so much stuff, let me, let me tell you, Job says, it's God's relationship. Somehow God has turned his back on me. Somehow God neglects me. I can't stand that. I can forget about all the, all the material blessings. I can live or, or not live with that. It doesn't matter. But where is God? And how does he, who was so close to me, how does he now find himself so distant from me? So he doesn't just describe his prosperous past. He yearns for it. He says, I want that back. Chapter 30 is a lament. As, as good as Job had it in that previous life, oh, it's horrible now. This chapter 30 uh, pr- laments his present disgrace. And then chapter 31 is his avowal or his disavowal of wrongdoing. He says, I'm innocent of these things. Uh, and he lists so, so many different things. So in chapter, thir- chapter 29, excuse me, he mourns and yearns for the fellowship he had with God. Verse 2 says, Oh, that I were as in months gone by, as in the days when God kept me, when his lamp shone over my head, and by his light I walked through darkness, as I was in the prime of my days, when the intimate counsel with God was over my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me, and my children were all around me, when my steps were bathed in butter, and the rock poured out for me streams of oil. He's talking about his fellowship with God. And notice several things about it. This was a long-standing situation, a relationship he had with him, and also gives us a little hint, by the way, as in months gone by. You think, okay, how long has it been since Job chapters 1 and 2? Perhaps months, right? It took some time for his friends to hear about the, the calamities that had befallen Job and then for them to come and then for the speeches to go on. So it's been a while that Job has been suffering in these days, in, in those ways. And it says, as in the days when God kept me. Remember the, remember the accusation that Satan leveled against God? You set a hedge about him, and you've blessed everything that he has, and, every, and in, in his own person as well. So th- there was that hedge of protection, if you don't mind, or when God kept me, he guarded me, he was my front and rear guard. Job kind of turns that on his head and says, why has God hemmed me in? Why has God put a, a limit upon my whole life? And he just, he just restricts me, and it feels so confining and conflicting to me. But here he says, in a positive fashion, God kept, he watched over me. His lamp shone over my head, the, the lamp of, of grace, of joy, of peace, of blessing. Uh, God's own lamp was over his head. Light is a, very much a symbol of, of life and of joy and, and so forth, uh, uh, prosperity and uh, comfort even in darkness. And it says here, his, by his light, I walk through darkness. God is the one who uh, blessed him to be able to navigate through dark times in his life, difficulties, challenges, distresses. God himself was near me and he helped me walk through it. It says, as I was in the prime of my days, this prime idea has to do with, um, the literally says, the autumn of my days. And you think, oh, wait a minute, the autumn of my days, that kind of must be just before winter. And in our perspective, that's not good. But in the Near Eastern perspective, autumn is the time of planting. It is time of life uh, coming into 
uh, the world as the time of, of early growth, even uh, youthfulness. So it's different from our thought about autumn, autumn of life. It's a days of ripe maturity, one person described it, the prime of my days. But notice this, when the intimate counsel with God was over my tent, this intimate counsel, God was so near to him, he was a companion to God, as later God is going to testify, even though he did already in chapter, uh, chapters 1 and 2, that Job is my servant, not just a slave, like a menial, you know, do this, do that kind of thing, but a servant in an endearing sense, and, and somebody who's so close to me, member of my own household, this confidant kind of thing, or being part of a confidential uh, discussion with God which kind of goes contrary to what the friends had accused Job of, saying, oh, you know, why don't, do you have a special knowledge of God? Have you been part of his intimate counsels and so forth? And Job says, yeah, I was. I didn't, he was not part of that heavenly court scene back in chapters 1 and 2, but God himself was there speaking with Job, consoling uh, or communicating with Job. There was this intimate uh, circle of acquaintances that, J- that Job himself was part of. And notice it says, the intimate counsel with God was over my tent, I didn't have to go to wherever to find God. I didn't need to go to this spot or that spot or search for him after a long journey. He was right in my tent. He was right with me. I called upon him, and we had a relationship together, this intimacy that of counsel and protection. When the Almighty was yet with me and my children were around me, when my steps were bathed in butter and the rock poured out for me streams of oil, God Almighty was with him, the fellowship that, that Job enjoyed, the children as evidence, and children are a heritage and inheritance from the Lord, and he was rejoicing in God's bounty in that regard. And then he gives the example, remember when God promised to bring Israel into a land flowing with milk and honey? Well, here we ha- have two indications of that. When my steps were bathed in butter, you think, well, that's not, that's not safe, right? You're going to slip. No, it has to do with curds of of milk that are just so abundant the rock my steps were bathed in butter all this this abundance was about me and i was able to enjoy the curds the the produce of animals right so the animal blessing the the livestock was was just abundant and all the, the produce of the livestock but then he talks about the streams of oil from the rock streams of oil has to do with olive oil primarily not it's interesting how god did not bless the the nation israel physical nation israel with petroleum products and that's kind of a lament they still continue to to can't get over but they do have a great i mean before petroleum there was olive oil that was the primary uh, means of lighting of cooking of even anointing and healing you know therapeutic kind of um, uh, medicines and so he says we had plenty of that the rock poured out for me which has different connotations one of it is that because the rabbis say when God was distributing rocks on the face of the earth, the bag kind of spilled over Israel, and it just kind of all fell out. Now, that's a little uh, exaggeration, perhaps, but there's so many rocks of Israel, and they think, well, but God is able to bring forth streams of, not water, as we might think about in numbers, but streams of oil, and how much, uh, much of a blessing is that? So abundance, uh, Job is saying, but it all comes from the relationship that he had, the fellowship he had with God. He goes on and says, look, my blessing was in the city. Verse 7 says, when I went out to the gate of the city, when I took my seat in the square, the young men saw me and hid. And the old men rose and stood. The princes stopped talking and put their hands on their mouths. The voice of the nobles was hidden away and their tongue clung to their palate. Job had great honor 
in the city, the dignity that was shown him, the respect that everybody from old to young showed him, even the princes, the, the noble kind of officials, when he went out to the gate of the city. And you think, what is he doing out in the gate? That's the place of business. That's the place of commerce. That's the place of conversation, fellowship. That's the place of justice. Uh, uh, you know, The court met there. It is filled with the important people of the city. And when Job went out there, he had a seat reserved. This is Mr. Job's seat, right? He took his seat right there. The young men saw me and hid, and the old men arose and stood. The honor that was shown to him, whatever his age was, was he evidently not a young man, perhaps not an old man either, but he was, he was honored by old, young and old alike. They recognized him as a leader, one who was worthy of their, their adoration. The princes stopped talking and put their hands in their mouths and goes on and describes how their, their tongue clung to their palate. That usually is in a, in a rather extreme, that phrase is usually in a rather extreme situation where they're just, their whole mouth went dry out of terror, out of uh, abject uh, fear. And so these people didn't have that, that fear that, that Job was going to you know, destroy them or whatever, as with other ancient Near Eastern and present Near Eastern rulers, but they said, we're going to honor him by keeping quiet. And he goes on and talks about this another time, a little bit later in this chapter. So he had great honor in the city, and he was known for his justice, the way that he pronounced good judgments on situations. He gives the, the reason for his honor in the city, verse 11 and following. For the ear heard, and it called me blessed, and the eye saw, and it gave witness of me, because I provided escape for the afflicted who cried for help, and the orphan who had no helper. So all, of, all people knew. They, it was a common testimony that Job is a righteous person. He is, has been blessed because he is a blessing to others. He, did not, he was not selfish about his blessings. He was not selfish about the counsel he'd received from the, from the Lord, the fellowship, the companionship he had. He shared it freely, and he was so active in that. He provided escape for the afflicted. He provided a justice, a, 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 a reasonable solution to their issues when they cried for help. And for the orphan who had no helper, he was very constant in providing that kind of care. He goes on and says, The blessing of the one ready to perish came upon me, and I made the widow's heart sing for joy. We see these different folks together. The orphan, the one ready to perish who had some, he was near death, uh, either physically or because of some, some judgment against him. And Job says, he's innocent. Let's make sure that we give adequate justice here. And, of course, he made the widow's heart sing for joy. The one who had no resources, had no family, those who are powerless, he became the power. He used his power to serve them. He says, I clothed myself with righteousness, and it clothed me. So, in other words, I, I, all my acts were, were guide, guide, guided by righteousness, and it returned to me tenfold, whatever kind of return you had. When I showed kindness to other people, people showed kindness to me. Do for others what you want them to do for you. Not like the, the blasphemous turn on that, do to others before they do it unto you, right? You've heard that before. No, he, he was so generous, so kind, and so magnanimous toward other people. He says, my justice was like a robe and a turban, a, a robe being something you put on and it shows your honor, your dignity. It's something for special occasions. A turban on his head indicated... Uh, um, official status or uh, recognized status in his in his uh, city. He says, I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. So not just people who are hopeless and powerless, but even those who had physical maladies, blindness or lameness. He was, he was helping to them and he was so much uh, showing kindness to them. He would, he would, um, 
again, show so much uh, mercy to them and, and even look out for those who needed assistance. He says, I was a father to the needy and I searched out the case which I did not know. So even the, the situations he's not personally familiar with, he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get to the bottom of this for you. I'm going to find out what's going on and bring justice to you. He was a father to the needy. He'll return to that idea in chapter 31. And even not just a passive or an after the fact kind of thing, but he, he was aggressive in pursuing justice for people. I broke the fangs of the unjust and snatched the prey from his teeth. So he is, again, he's going out of his way to help people. He didn't have to do that, right? He's, he's this noble guy in the city, and yet he's going out and getting his hands dirty for the sake of, uh, for the benefit of other people. He had a, a former hope uh, in verse 18 and following. He said, you know, because of my life, I'll breathe my last in my nest. I shall multiply my days as the sand. My root is spread out to the waters and dew lies all night on my branch. My glory is ever new with me and my bow bow, is renewed in my hand. So that was the expectation he had. Life has been so good, I expect to die in my nest. The idea there being his home, his place of habitation even can indicate not just the the nest itself or the dwelling but those who dwell in that tent so the nestlings of the scripture also has that that phrase uh, to talk about so he says i'll die with my family around me in the comfort of my own home i shall but my life is going to be long i shall multiply my days as the sand which is there's a lot of sand especially you know, depending on where he was. There's just sand all over the place. And then he gives, so he's talking about a bird and the nest, and he talks about the sand on the seashore or wherever it is. And then he goes to a tree analogy. My root, my root is spread out to the waters and dew lies all night on my branch. Water is very important, especially in a desert situation where Job was likely. And he says, my root goes right into the, to the waters. It is, it is, it is, uh, it produces this luxury, this luxuriant produce of the tree. And even if you can't get water down on the ground, God's dew rests on me all night long, and it is just, he's, he's nourished, he is uh, just powerful, he is enjoying his life, and he says, my glory is ever new with me, and my bow is renewed in my hand, that strength, that vigor, that ability to, to serve other people, meet needs, he is uh, just rejoicing in that. He returns to the idea of his former status at the end of this chapter, and he says, he's not repeating himself, but he is segueing, transitioning into what he's going to lament in chapter 30. He says, look, when, when, people, when I spoke, people listened and they waited for me to speak and they kept silent for my counsel. They said, okay, Job's, Job's going to talk sometime about this time. And, and then after he spoke, they didn't speak again. There's nothing else to say. My speech dropped on them. Not like a heavy thing, but they, oh, that's wisdom. That's discernment. Job, thank you for blessing us with your judgments, your words. They waited for me as for the rain. They opened their mouth as for the late rain. There's some things going on there with, in, in Israel specifically, but in the Middle East, there's, there's a former rain and a latter rain. The former rain in like November, October. October comes first, doesn't it? October, November, that former rain. And then there's a latter rain that comes usually January, February, into March. And the former rain um, softens the ground so then you can sow the seed so you can plant it and get it going because it's very hard after a long summer no rain at all they waited for me as for the rain hey the rains come now we can do our 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 sowing of our seed and getting things ready and then the latter rain is that which gives that that added burst of life and that needed moisture that's going to carry the crop to harvest come uh, late spring early summer and so they were just so grateful for whatever job says it's like life to them life-giving words 
He says, I laughed with them as they could not believe it. In the light of my face, they did not cast down. Job's smile was a blessing to other people. And he gave that blessing uh, just very freely, very freely in his, his smiling, his laughing, not at them, but with them. He says, I chose a way for them and sat as chief. He's the one, he's making the decisions. He's calling the shots. He might be in a, even in a military sense. He is the chief. He dwelt among them as the head of their troops, as one who comforted the mourners, those who didn't come back from the warfare, perhaps. So Job just had this wonderful, wonderful life. But notice how he said it, not so much in terms of his material wealth for himself, you know, gold and all this stuff, servants, I, my heart's desire. No, I had fellowship with God, and I was able to use that fellowship to serve other people. His, the blessing that he misses most about his former life was the ability he had to show kindness to other people, to be a blessing to other people. You realize that our Christianity, our faith in Christ, is not just for ourselves. I mean, yes, we want forgiveness, we want life everlasting, but we, as one of my friends down in Texas would say, we are blessed to be a blessing. And it's not something that we need to keep. We are channels of blessing. We want to share God's bounty with other people. And that's what Job celebrated, just so grateful to the Lord for using him in that way, But then the contrast is right here in chapter 30. Chapter 30, wait a minute. Everybody listened to me now. They they paid respect to me. But now everybody's mocking me. And so he goes on and verse 1 says, Now those younger than me, or younger than I, laugh at me, whose fathers I rejected him to put with the dogs of my flock. So those who are both younger, so they should be showing honor, respect to Job, but they don't. And even their fathers, they're not worth anything. I, I would not hire them. I would not use them in any way, not even putting them with my dogs, which dogs can be useful, but in, in a lot of respects, they're just uh, scavengers. They're unclean. They're just disgusting creatures. And okay, if you're cat people, I don't, it doesn't matter. But they are, they're filthy. They're despised. And Job says, I wouldn't, th- their fathers are so despised. I wouldn't put them with my despised dogs. Indeed, what good was the strength of their hands to me? They didn't, they weren't useful. The fathers were. Vigor had perished from them. From want and famine they're gaunt, who gnaw the dry ground by night, and destruction and desolation, who pluck mallow by the bushes, and whose food is the root of the broom tree. I think, what? What's he talking about? They were, it says they had no vigor. They were strengthless. They didn't have any ability to work, which is a problem. They had no usefulness to Job. They were looking, they had no resources. They wouldn't work, so it's kind of a choice thing. And they would uh, just go out after the, the natural or natural growing plants in the desert, this uh, salt wort, I think it's called, which is not tasty. It's very salty, and it's eaten only when you have to. It's not something you'd seek out, oh, there's a salt wort. Let's go get some of that stuff. No. Is there anything else we can have? I guess we'll settle for that. And that's these people. They, they didn't have any other means. They weren't harvesting their own crops because they weren't working. They didn't have that. And they plucked mallow by the bushes. They were the ones whose, whose food is the root of the broom tree. The broom tree roots especially were used for lighting fires. Uh, Psalm 120. Yeah, Psalm 120 talks about the roots of the broom tree, uh, the, the, dark, the, the burning coals of the broom tree. And so he's talking, it's, it's, they're eating that stuff? That's not edible stuff, but that's all they could, they could get. They're driven from the community. They shout against them as against a thief so that they dwell in the slopes of the valleys and holes of the dust and of the rocks. Nobody trusts them. Nobody wants them around. They're not trustworthy. They are cast out. They're, they're castaways or outlaws or whichever, you know, bandits and rascals, and they're just not, you don't, nobody wants them there. So they settle wherever they can find. Among the bushes they crowd, under the nettles they're gathered together just trying to find any kind of refuge. And they are wicked fools. 
not just foolish based on ignorance, but wickedly, deliberately foolish and morally corrupt. They don't have a name. They're nameless. You can think of a book with that kind of idea. They, they just are, are full of shame, having no name, but that means they're full of shame, they're unloved, they're, they're just hideous people, and they were scourged from the land. We don't want them around here, and these are the people that are cursing Job. And Job says they have no right, no right at all, to curse me, to mock me, but they're doing it. Well, what are they, what are they doing? They receive, uh, oh yeah, they, Job receives this shameful mocking. Well, what is this? Verse 9 says, I've become their mocking song. They sing kind of a taunting thing, and you can think of examples of songs that are sung in a rather taunting, mocking kind of way, a scornful way. I've become a taunting word to them. Uh, he's big word to them. I mean, people are talking about, oh, you don't want to be a Job now, do you? You can think about other folks in the scriptures that have a, a rather negative name. Think of Haman, for example. Ooh, bad Haman, or Judas. Judas. We know all about Judas. Job has become like that. He is just so wicked, obviously, because he's suffering so much. He's a great sinner. I mean, a horrible, notorious sinner. They abhor me and keep a distance from me, and they do not hold back from spitting at my face. Again, the height of honor and dignity and respect that Job had, now he's being spat upon by people that are just wicked, morally wicked, wicked fools. Why is it? Because God has loosed his bowstring and afflicted me, and they have thrust aside their bridle before me. They're just unleashed or, or uh, coming after Job with all of their hatred and animosity because obviously God is cursing him, God is afflicting him because of his sin. On the right hand, their brood arises, they thrust aside my feet and build up against me their ways to disaster. They break up my path, they profit from my destruction, they have no helper. As through a wide breach they come and amid the storm they roll on, terrors are turned against me, they pursue my nobility as the wind, and my hope for salvation is passed away like a cloud. Job doesn't expect any answer to this. They've come after him with everything they have, want to destroy him, want to cast him away. And Job says, I don't have any expectation that, that this is going to change for me. This is horrible. Terrors, terrors of death and of, of the, the separation from God, they're just afflicting me. And so now he, he turns, okay, God's the one who did it, and God is the one who's destroying him with an endless and hopeless pain. And he, just, he describes that as we go along. My soul is poured out within me. Days of affliction have seized me. At night it pierces my bones within me, and my gnawing pains take no rest. By great force, my garment is distorted. It seizes me about the collar of my tunic. He has cast me into the mire, and I become like dust and ashes. I cry out to you for help, but you do not answer me. I stand up, and you carefully consider how to be against me. You have become cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you have hunted me down. You lift me up to the wind and cause me to ride, and you melt me away in a storm. For I know that you will bring me to death and to the house of meeting for all living." Job, just again, he, he says, there's no way out for this. God is against me. I'm trying to call upon him. Other people called upon my help, and I helped them. When I call out to God, he is silent. And in fact, he's not just silent. He's thinking about what he can do next to cause me trouble. Think of Tevye in Fiddler on the Roof. You know, you know what, what kind of mischief can I cause for my good friend Tevye down there? And that's not, you know, that's not right. Job is, is putting words into God's mouth and, and interpreting the situation that Job has experienced. God hates me. God is against me. God has restricted or removed justice from me. And if you fast forward just a little bit, in chapter 40, chapter 40, verse 1, I think, or maybe verse 2, God says, who is this fault finder who contends with the Almighty? It wasn't that Job was wrong to declare his innocence, that he was right, that he, there's nothing in his life that warrants this, this suffering, nothing. But then to go and say God is somehow wrong. 
God is somehow sinning against me. God is somehow doing things that aren't nice to me. Is the fault finder, Job, are you contending with me? Are you, in order to prove yourself right, do you have to prove me wrong? And that's wrong, obviously. And God comes, he doesn't ever answer Job's questions. In fact, just question after question, God asks him. And, and Job says, well, we'll look at his response, two different responses. But he gives glory to God, that God is both omniscient, he knows everything, that's chapters 38 and 39. God knows everything, Job doesn't know barely anything. And then in chapters 40 and 41, God is omnipotent, omnipotent or omnipotent. He's all-powerful. God can do anything. He knows everything and he can do all things. And so, Job, you just rest in that knowledge. You just settle, you know, cool your, your boots or whatever the phrase is. You just settle down. You rest in what you do know about me. And let me tell you some more about me. Because obviously you think that you are somehow elevating and you are, are licensed to elevate yourself against me. I'm not your opponent. I'm on your side. But you better just remember your place. Remember, you're not God. I'm God. Have you ever known this? Have you ever done this? Have you know where this and that and the other thing are? I do. And you just rest in the knowledge of me. Job is accusing God. He's rebuking God. God, you are the one who has afflicted me without cause. You're the one who's caused me gnawing pains. That I have, not, I have no rest in these things. I, I'm not even comfortable in my skin, not even comfortable in clothes. It just is horrible to me. You have cast me into the mire. There's dust and ashes about me. It's because of your judgment upon me. And he says, but I'm not worthy of it. I, I've never done these things. Or if I have, I've tried to cover them. or I did cover them with, with sacrifice. I cry out to you for help. You don't answer where are you, God? You're the one. Arise, rise up, O God, and come to my aid. And instead of coming to his aid, God says, hmm, what else can I do to be against Job? Because that's how Job perceives it. He's, he's really following that line of, somewhat, the line of reasoning of his friends, that sin follows suffering. I've not sinned, but God is still causing me suffering. He must be unjust. He, he must not Either he's not aware of my situation or he's not willing to act on my behalf or, or something's disconnected. I don't understand. He, Job says, you're, the might of your hand has hunted me down. You, you're just constantly causing me distress and trouble. I have no relief. You, even you make me to rise up on the wind and then you just dash me to the ground. You, you raise me up to bring me absolutely to destitution. You melt me away in a storm. And I know you'll kill me. And I'm going to go to the house of meeting for all living. I'm going to go to death, to Sheol. He doesn't understand it. He laments the injustice of God in verse 24 uh, to the rest of the chapter. Yet does not one in a heap of ruins stretch out his hand or in his upheaval? Is there a cry for help because of them? When we see people who are in, even just recently, in the earthquake in Syria and Turkeya, uh, uh, Turkey, those who are crying, reaching out a hand, somebody's going to come to rescue them. And Job says, no, nobody comes to help me. I'm the one who came to help so many people, people I didn't even know. Even strangers, sojourners came into our town looking for justice, and I gave it to them. I searched out their situation. Here I am, reaching out a hand for help. Nobody, nobody has helped him. Even his, his dear wife, back in chapter 2, says, Do you still hold fast your integrity, Job? Curse God and die. Oh, I mean, that, that's his nearest relation. A little bit later, in chapter 42, in the restoration, the, re the turning of all things, we see that Job does have siblings, and they come to him. Well, where have they been all this time? 
Why didn't they give comfort? Because they, they wanted to keep distance because they said somehow Job's on the outs with God because he's a great sinner. We don't want to participate or, or be somehow guilty of his sin. So we're going to just wait and see how this plays out. Later, they're restored to him. The restoration of respect, of dignity, the blessing that Job has been to others returns in chapter 42. But right now, there's nobody around Job. These comforters that have come to Job, they're not comforting. They're worthless physicians. They spew these, these windy words that are not helpful at all. And Job is just, just uh, ruined. He's undone. He doesn't know what's going to be next. He says, have I not wept for the, uh, for the one whose life is hard? He's trying to, you know, give a hand up, as it were. Was not my soul greed for the needy? Yes, he was. He was ruined. He was brought low because, hey, there's somebody going without, without clothing, without food, without uh, justice. He was active. He, his soul was grieved to the point of action. When I hoped for good, then evil came. For myself, I was a, a blessing to others. But when I look for help myself, I only get evil. I'm looking for good, and it just turns bad for me. When I waited for light, then thick darkness came. I think, I don't know if it was uh, Charlie Brown or um, Snoopy who said just before the, or how does it, how does he go? Um, it's always darkest before it goes pitch black, right? And that's what Job says. I waited for light and then just got darker. I'm boiling within. I cannot be silent. I've got to speak these things. Days of affliction confront me day after day after day. I have no expectation of recovery. I go about darkened, but not by the sun, he mentioned earlier about his, his skin is, is dark or black, not because of uh, sun tanning or sunburning, but the disease, the, the wounds, the scabs, the, all the just nastiness upon his skin. He says, I stand up in the assembly. I'm asking for the people who, remember my friends? He's, he's looking out for these people, and they're nowhere to be found. He cries out for help, and he says, I have become a brother to jackals. I used to be a brother, a, a ruler, a leader, a loved one to noble people and now all i can find to give me any kind of comfort and company are jackals and ostriches wild animals jackals that are just wicked and, and violent and ostriches which are dumb and just foolish and he says that's all who will even come to to be a partner with me my skin turns black on me my bones burn with fever again he's got this this horrible uh, health condition and he says my harp you know his his tune for celebration and joy is turned to mourning and my flute to the sound of those who weep. Instead of a, a happy tune, there's, there's, there are dirges or just mourning songs, just horrible, uh, depressive kind of things. That that's, describes his situation. His life is all that because of the opposition of God. God is the one who has afflicted him. God is the one who has loosed his bow against him and uh, reached out his hand and hunted him down. And he says, it's, you know, when God knows how to bless, oh, he blesses. When God knows, knows how to curse, he curses. But this isn't a curse of God. This is not a curse of God. This is a kindness of God to Job to bring Job to a clear, better, more intimate relationship with God himself. And Job himself will testify to that. I heard about you with the, with the ear, but now my eyes see you. And therefore I repent in dust and ashes because I, I see the glory of God. I see that he is great and awesome and knows everything and can do all things. I'm not anywhere near to, I repent, I, I take back my words, not the words, he doesn't need to take back his words of declaration of innocence because God said you're innocent, but his words that found fault with God, his words that said, God is somehow being mean to me, God is somehow uh, giving me things I don't deserve, which, excuse me, what do you deserve? You want deserving? You want what's fair? Let me tell you what you deserve. Wrath, judgment. Separation from God. Absolute, and God is against you every time. 
That's what we deserve. But in grace, in grace, God reveals himself to us. He shows himself as strong on behalf of him whose heart is complete toward him. He shows himself faithful, even though we are not faithful, even though we are confused, we're, we're faithless, we're, we're overcome by, I think of Peter, the wind and the waves about him. Peter, look to me, look to Christ. That is the answer. Job is blessed. Eventually, by the restoration of his, of his reputation and all that stuff, but that comes after his restoration with God, his reconciling with God. In other words, his blessing does not follow his piety in the sense of uh, somehow he has earned it. No, he, he was satisfied even just with the restoration of a relationship with God. Forget about all the stuff that he would give or, or not give because God gives and takes away. But having that restoration of fellowship, that intimacy with God, that's what he longed for. And all the other stuff is added, kind of like Matthew 6, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all that other stuff that the world chases after and celebrates and, and kills and murders for. That'll just be added. It'll be added unto you. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Look for his glory. Don't speak wrongly. Don't speak foolishly about him. Don't make God somehow responsible for responsible for. Don't be the one who looks at life and says, I know what God's doing. Let me tell you what God's doing in your life. You have no idea. How about you just sit down and listen? Which the friends did not do. They weren't listening to Job when he was saying these things. They had their own idea. They said, no, this is the solution. They had a boilerplate solution, and that's and Job was outside of that. They, he was an exception to this. He was suffering not because of his sin. He was blessed not because of his piety. He was blessed by God's grace, and he was suffering as a test, uh, which Elihu is going to help us understand a little bit better, this testing. Not that Job had sinned, but to keep Job from sinning, this testing came to, to Job. As it, came to, as it comes to everybody. We are being tested so we can prove God as faithful, but also to say, I need to walk the straight and narrow path, not because that makes God like me more, but that is what glorifies God. Me walking in line with him, keeping in step with the Spirit, that's what glorifies God. That's what's life for me. For me. And so Job, is, is, he needs to hear from God. Thankfully, and we didn't get to it this time, next week, chapter 31, where Job demands God to answer him. God, you better come down, because if you don't come down, then I'm innocent by default. Because if you do not prove your case against me, I'm free. If you don't show up and, and condemn me, then I'm acquitted. And so you think, okay, so if God in the next chapter spoke after Job finished, chapter 31, verse whatever number it is, uh, Job, the words of Job are ended, verse 40. If then the next word is, and therefore God spoke in response to Job's demand, God didn't do that. God is not bound to our time frame. God is not bound to our demands. I demand my day in court. That's what Job is demanding, all this, this whole narrative. We hear from Elihu first, kind of like we hear from John the Baptist before Jesus comes, one who is a forerunner who's going to lead us to Christ, going to announce the coming of God. Elihu has that kind of a, a form or fashion, a function in, that, in the narrative here. And then God will speak, but not because Job demands it, because God himself is going to put himself on display. He's the one who started this whole thing, right? Back in chapter 1. Hey, Satan, have you considered my servant Job? It wasn't Satan 
who was was uh, you know pushing the test forward was God presenting it because Satan had spent much attention on Job. He was the one who was the greatest of the sons of the east. If, he, if Satan can take Job down, he will affect and uh, inflict uh, pain and 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 faithfulness, faithlessness upon a whole generation of people. But God said, "Let me let me show you about this. Let me show you about my faithfulness. Let me show you about my glory and my worshipfulness in Job's life." And it brought about Job's ruin and yet his restoration. And we can have that confidence too. So much about Job's life reflects what Christ has done. Just one thought about that will be done. Do you remember how Job, excuse me, how Jesus had that fellowship with God? Remember in John, 13, John 17, he said, glorify me with the glory I had before the world was or the fellowship he had with God. And now, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, Christ became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. Wait a minute. God himself became sin. I mean, yes, he became man, Philippians 2, but he became sin for us. What a, a difference from, again, chapter 29, Job's great blessing, his prosperous past, and now his present disgrace. Jesus, who's surrounded by criminals, nameless people, vagabonds, rascals, bandits, thieves, all these guys, and, and even died in the place of a murderer, Barabbas, here he is on the cross, dying for the sins of the world, and these people on his right and left are mocking him, cursing him with all the people down below. Isn't that Job 30? People younger than me, older than me, are cursing me, mocking me. And Jesus did it not because he deserved it. It's like Job didn't deserve it. But because it was a, a proof, of God, proof of God's faithfulness, a proof of God's redemption. Jesus is that redeemer. Job didn't redeem anybody, but he was redeemed. He was brought into a better relationship with God because of his his trial, his testing, and we can learn from him too. Not trying to explain God, but to let him explain himself to us, his actions, his wisdom, his his design in our lives, because it doesn't a lot of times make sense to us. Why is God doing this? Why is, not God, why is God not doing that? It's because God is omniscient. He knows all things, and because he's omnipotent, he can do all things for his glory. Our Father in heaven, we're so grateful. We rest in that knowledge. Uh, just so surprising to us. We don't understand it ultimately and yet we understand you to, to the degree you've revealed yourself to us and you are faithful and you are working in ways we can't even begin to understand we don't know the end from the beginning but you do you've said it and you are outside of time and so we know that your will will be accomplished you are powerful to do these things satan isn't anything uh, uh, a real challenge to you a real menace to you he's he is your devil you accomplish your will and your way through him, just as in the case of Job. And we pray that you would help us to reflect not the fault-finding tendency of Job, saying somehow God has wronged me, but to rest in the fact that you do all things rightly. And again, that is so hard sometimes to say that was right, that death of this loved one or this restriction of that or this. Yes, you are faithful and you are good. Please help us to rest in that knowledge. Please help us to share that good news. It's not a bad news to say you're sovereign and good and loving and kind. That is good news. That's the best news that we can offer, and especially that you have shown your kindness through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ to die in the place of sinners so that they can be justified and forgiven of sin and have that relationship with you, that fellowship, not just in this life, but in eternity. We're so grateful for your kindness. Thank you for the study in the book of Job, and please help us to glorify Christ because he is a sufficient Savior. We pray in his name. Amen.